Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Good morning, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. How are we doing this morning? Great, great. Two of you are doing great. Uh, my name is Dwayne. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at uh, the District Church. And no, no idea who this is. Does anyone drive a silver Acadia in here? Going once, going twice. Okay. If you do drive a silver Acadia and you're just ashamed of it, um, it's parked in, a, in, in the, the brewery parking spot. And they will tow you. And so if you want to move it, you can at, at any moment when we pray or close our eyes or something like that. You can do that. That'd be great. Um, but anyways, good morning. My name is Dwayne. Like I said, one of the teaching pastors here at the district. Um, apologize for my voice. Just woke up this morning and it was shot um, and just hurting. And so um, I've got cough drops and, and all that good stuff. So um, bear with me. If I lose it at some point during the sermon, then... Um, God was ready for it to be done, and so we'll um, just go with that. But we are in a series right now called Misconceptions, and we're looking at just some major misconceptions that are within Christianity uh, that have kind of trickled into the church from our culture around us. Um, they've kind of been defined by our culture rather than defined by God um, through His Word. And so we've, we've tackled several of those topics over the months of June and, and into July, um, primarily because we just want to be informed on these topics. We want to be able to have an answer for um, when people bring up what is the gospel or how do we relate to uh, the gospel? What is law versus grace? What do we do with money? Are we supposed to tithe in a church? Are we not supposed to tithe in a church? These are several topics that we've already covered um, over our last several weeks. Uh, last week was a heavy one. We talked about suffering and, and the role of suffering in our lives and uh, does God promise suffering? Does he use suffering? What does that look like in our lives? Does, does the gospel promise that it's going to remove suffering from our lives and, and ultimately give us health and wealth and prosperity and, and those kind of things? And so we, we tackled that issue last week and, and really wanted to look at what God's doing in the midst of difficult circumstances and how he can be honored and glorified in those things, even if the circumstances themselves are not removed from us. Um, how is God still honored, glorified, and is it ultimately for our good that we go through those types of things? And so we looked at that last week, and so if you missed that one, definitely go back and listen to that one, because I believe everyone in this room, if you've not entered into suffering, you will enter into suffering, um, because it's guaranteed in this life. And so we want you to be informed on how, how to deal with it when it happens. Um, and so please go back and, and listen to that. And our topic today is around the church. Um, so what is a church? How does it function? Um, how were we kind of brought up into this idea of what a church is? Um, maybe kind of in today's culture, how is church being redefined? What, what does it kind of ultimately become? Is it stripped of what God's really empowered it to be? And it's kind of become um, something completely different. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. And although church can seem like a simple, um, a simple thing, uh, it, it's very easy for us to quickly 
make it complex and make it difficult to understand. Um, and I think that's true in a lot of things. Um, just this last week, I was taking Ezra and Wyatt over to Grandpa's house because they love going to Grandpa's house. At least three times a week, I'm hearing Ezra say, can I live with Grandpa and not you guys? Because um, I really enjoy his pool and all the toys and the videos that I get to watch. But um, So anyways, I'm constantly combating trying to get him to stay with us. But anyways, um, as we were taking him over to Grandpa's house, I pulled out off of Kessler onto Benford, which turns into I-69, and I'm heading up towards Grandpa's. And when we pull out on there, Ezra asked me a question. He's like, is this the long road? And I know what he's asking when he asked that question. He's, he's familiar with short, small roads versus long, big roads. Because whenever we go see my family down in Tennessee, that's usually a four-hour drive for us. And so when we get out on the long road... He hates it because he knows we're going to be in the car for a long time. And so he starts asking these questions. Are we, are we on the long road? Are we going to be on this? For, I'm like, no, no, no. It, it looks like the long road. It technically is the long road, but we're not going to Tennessee. We're just going to Grandpa's. And he was like, so how do we get to Tennessee? I was like, well, we take the long road to get to Tennessee. Well, does this road go to Tennessee? And I say, well, first this one is, becomes I-69. We go to 465. Then we go to I-65. And then we... He's like, so this road does go to Tennessee. And so then I'm like having an existential crisis where I'm like, all roads lead to the same place. And I'm like, that's not true, though. And so now I'm trying to figure out how do I explain something that's simple that can easily become complex. And then at the same time, I'm just telling him, look, buddy, here's my phone. Watch Paw Patrol. We'll be there in five minutes. Like, that's what I had. And don't like judge me. I'm not that kind of parent that just like throws the phone at them at any moment. But if it's between trying to pull out an atlas or like, you know, just giving him Paw Patrol for five minutes, I, I went with it. So don't judge me. Um, but it's quickly becoming something very complex. And, and I think that's the exact same thing that's happened with the church. Um, we say we know what it is, but if you begin asking people what it is, um, it, you quickly begin to have differing viewpoints, differing beliefs, differing understandings of what the church is. Um, we typically describe church as something that we go to. Like, I go to this church, or I go to that church. Um, I attend this church. Even our online metrics that we use um, to kind of put people's info in, to be able to follow up and connect with them, even describes people as visitor or attender. So it almost uses the language like a church is something that I visit or that I attend. Well, just within the last month, I visited the zoo and I attended a concert. Um, does that mean that I'm a part of those things or that I belong to those things? Um, we then use language like uh, membership or belonging. I belong to this membership. I belong to technically Planet Fitness. Um, I, I have uh, utilized my good standing membership twice in the last year. Um, but according to them, because they get my steep price of $10 a month, they're, like, I belong to them. I'm within good standing with them. I'm a member of Planet Fitness. But I rarely use the benefits of, of Planet Fitness, even though I know it looks like I do, whatever. Um, but I technically belong there. So then we have to look at this idea of, okay, does, does just becoming a member of a church or belonging to a church 
um, does that really then define the church? Does that actually make up the church? Is, this, is the people who are members of it? Uh, when I was serving at a church in Tennessee, uh, we had a membership role of 850 people with 300 people attending the church. Um, so weekly, there was about 300 people there, but we would tell everyone we're an 850-person church because that's what was on our membership role. It didn't matter if they died in 1955. Like, they were still on our membership role. So is membership the only thing that then defines what a church is? And so then we start looking at this idea of what does the commitment look like to belong. And so that's why we use within our membership covenant membership language because it's familial language. It is commitment-based language. It is uh, responsible language on both sides. It's not just what we do as leadership, but it's also what you do as the body of Christ. So most think the church is is a building you go to. Some think church is a group of people. Some think... The church is a movement or a mission. Some think the church is a religious institution or organization. Um, And so I want to show you some examples in Scripture when the term church is mentioned so that we can kind of start to build for ourselves a framework, a structure, to be able to then understand how church operated when it was first started by Christ himself, how it's being built by Christ himself, and then ultimately how that plays itself out for us today. And so I'm going to jump through a few different scriptures that mention the idea of church. I'm going to start with Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. You can turn there with me. Um, This will kind of be like Bible drill. If you were raised in church, we're going to go from one to another to another. And so um, the fastest person there, you will not get anything. Um, But Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, it says this. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their, their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that is in their house. So right here in Romans 16, you see that the church is defined by a group of believers that are gathered in a house. Um, when we started the district church, Uh, We started as a group of about 10 people that met in a house for about six months. Um, That's how we got our starts. So a lot of times people say, like, when was the church started? Typically people look at the idea of a launch date. If you go by that, it would be August 2016. But if you go by this definition of the church that is within the house, that is gathering around the Word of God, that is worshiping God himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then the church started in January 2016 when we started meeting at the Duran's house in their their living room. so that's this idea here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So the church is believers that are in a house, but the church is also the believers that are within a city. To the church that is within Corinth. Corinth is a city. So it's everyone who belongs to the church that is living within the city of Corinth. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 31, says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So the church is a group of believers in a house. The church is also a bunch of believers in a given city. And the church is also all the believers that are within an area or a region geographically. Like The church is also all the believers in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Maybe not Michigan, but... 
specifically Indiana and Ohio. In Ephesians 5.25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So who's Paul talking about here when it comes to the church is this relationship between Christ the bridegroom and the church being his bride. Well, that's the church that has existed throughout all of history. So every believer in Christ is a part of the global, historical, eternal church that is the bride of Christ. There are these metaphors about what the church actually is. It refers to the church as a family. God is our father. You and I are brothers and sisters. We see that in scripture. You've got the image of the bride, as I just read. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. We're wearing the white dress, pure and undefiled on our wedding day, reconciled to God. You've got that imagery. You've got where us Gentiles are grafted into the vine in John chapter 15. So we are branches. Jesus is the vine and the father is the vine dresser. You've got that language of us being connected and then you get um, the other imagery, and one of the biggest ones in the New Testament, and that's where we'll be spending some of our time today, is what we see in 1 Corinthians 12. And so I do want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, because I'm going to be reading several verses here. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is one of the greatest, most consistent imageries we have when it comes to the idea of church. We have one head, Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the leader. Kind of the language that we use with the district church, if you go through our covenant membership class, is that we are a Jesus-ruled church. Jesus-ruled, elder-led, member-accountable, and deacon-served. That's the idea that we look at, is that Jesus is our senior pastor. Jesus is our main leader. Jesus is the one that we trust. He's the one that we follow. He's the one that we want to be disciples of. He is the head of our body. And then from the head dictates all of the members of the body. Jesus gifts us with, with roles and responsibilities. He gifts us with capacities and chemistries. He, he gifts us with all these different things that allow us to be both individual but a part of something collective individual as members of a body but ultimately serving the entire body for the sake of Christ being the head 
So there's going to be some who are hands and some who are feet and some who are eyes and some who are toes and some who are joints and some who are ligaments. There's going to be different roles and responsibilities within the body of Christ, but every single part of the body must be present and active in order for the body of Christ to ultimately move and to work. And so this is why this is we, we, we like to um, combat the language of consumerism Christianity. Consumer Christianity is just a kind of an uh, exchange of goods and services. And so if I'm searching for a church, if I'm looking for a church, if I come into it with the mindset of how can this church serve me? How can this church provide for me? How can this church meet my needs? How can this church take on um, the role of my preferences? And so do I like the music? Is the kids' ministry exactly what I want it to be? Do I like um, the 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 preacher do I like the uh, design and the look of the church like do I mean you're shopping essentially for things to make you feel better about something that you're belonging to and that's not necessarily the way that God set up the church I mean if you look at what Jesus did himself to come to create the church was setting aside his position in glory with the father at the right hand To then come, as Philippians 2 says, to empty himself to the point of becoming a bondservant. To then lay down his life to the point of death on a cross in order to then create a community of believers who trust him, love him, serve him. Like, that's what he's willing to do. As he says himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve. We don't come to church to be served, but to serve following in the way of our Lord Jesus. That's what we're after. So three things that I want to look at here is what is the mission of God? We can never understand the mission of the church if we don't understand the mission of God. What is the mission of God? Which then dictates what is the mission of the church? Which then dictates for us what is the mission of the district church? So those are the three things that I want to look at um, as we jump into this. So first and foremost, because we want to be God-honoring, God-glorifying, the mission of God is simply that, to glorify God. The entire Bible is one command, to bring God glory. And because we messed that up, the entire Bible is playing out this story of redemption to get us back to this position of being able to give God glory, to give Him honor, to give Him praise, to give Him Um, um, the worth that he ascribes for himself to be deemed necessary. He is worthy of all praise, all worship, all honor, all attention, all affection, all of it. He's good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's the standard of all of that. Nothing else is better, more beautiful than God himself. And so because we were designed to be worshipers, We are always after something in worship. We are after loving something, being affectionate for something, stirring up our our attention to be able to grab something in order to gratify our desires. And what God is saying is, I want you to place all of that in my direction. I want you to glorify me, honor me, because that's the only thing that will satisfy your desires and your affections. The gratifications of who you are and your identity. The only way that will ever fully be in its um, full essence is if it's directed at God, not this world and what the world offers us. 
That's why the first commandment that you see in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, is this. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What he's ultimately saying is, I am God. I am the one that you are to worship and honor. And you're going to be tempted to create little gods that you're going to form into different images, graven images, and we can contextualize that into our current day and age in the idea of um, entertainment and uh, materialism, uh, smartphones, whatever it is that we can build, manufacture, and create in order to give ourselves over to it rather than giving ourselves over to God. Now, I'm not saying that those things are inherently wrong. It's just whether or not you're using them to gratify yourself or ultimately to worship God. If you're using tools and resources and materialism to gratify yourself, it's always going to terminate on those things, and you're just going to grow inwardly frustrated more and more and more. There's a way in which you can use money to honor God and you can steward it rightly and have a satisfying life. You can use money to honor yourself and gratify yourself and you're going to be very frustrated with it. Although money has no change in it. I mean, it has changed, but it's, it, 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 there's no, it, it is money. iPhone is an iPhone. It's what you do with it that's either going to honor God and bring gratification to your soul and spirit. It's going to to fuel you or it's going to rob from you when you look for it to be your ultimate source of satisfaction. You shall not bow down to those things, but rather bow down to God because he's for you. He wants you. He, He loves you. He wants you to be satisfied, but he knows that you can only be satisfied when he is your source of satisfaction. We also see this in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10, verses 27. He says this. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is God's just ringing. C.S. Lewis says before he became a Christian that he thought after reading the book of Psalms that God was like this old granny up in heaven just demanding praise, just demanding compliments. That's how he viewed God before he became a Christian. After he became a Christian, he instead saw the, the commands to praise me, honor me, worship me. They weren't in this heavy-handed thing where we have to compliment this old woman who's insecure, but rather that it's the greatest thing for us to experience is praising and honoring and worshiping God. That's the only thing that actually builds within us flourishment. That's the mission of God. The mission of the church flows from the mission of God, as it says here in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Honor God with all your life, with all your heart, with all your soul, and then your neighbor as yourself. The mission of the church flows from the mission of God. Bring God glory by then turning to the world around you and loving them, serving them as God has served and loved you. The mission of the church is simply to make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I always just have to make this point that I love that these were the 11 men, 12 minus Judas. These were the 11 men who spent three years with Jesus, who saw the teachings, who saw the authority, who saw the miracles, who saw the feeding of the 5,000, who were present, a few of them, at the transfiguration. They were with Jesus for three years. He gets crucified. He resurrects. He asks them to come to this mountain. They're showing up. They see him, and some are still doubting. Like, that's one of the things that builds my faith that God inspired these scriptures. Because if man was simply writing these scriptures, we're leaving out the things that make us look dumb. We're leaving out, like, I didn't doubt. I worshiped him. Like, you know Peter's leaving out the, I denied him three times to his face. No, 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 Peter's, not, Peter's like, let's just start at Pentecost and go from there. Let's not point out the things that make us look like idiots. Some still doubted. That gives me hope. It gives me hope for the moments where I'm still wrestling. As a pastor of the district church, I'm still wrestling with, man, is this legit? Is, is Jesus who he is? Is God who he says he is? Is he working through this church like he's promised that he's going to work through it? Are the scriptures holding the authority that God says that they hold? Like there's parts of me that still doubt within this. And then I love the reminders, as Jesus says here. In verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, knowing that they're doubting, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the most underutilized verse in all of Scripture. Because we quickly run to the mission. What do I do? What do you need me to do? We don't sit in all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. All authority. Anything he thinks goes. Anything he says goes. Anything he wants goes. All authority is his. How long you live, his authority Career you end up with, his authority. How many children you have, his authority. Flourishment of your soul and your life, his authority. Food you eat, his authority. Grass remains grass because it's his authority. Water remains water because it's his authority. Everything is upheld in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything is bestowed to him. All authority is Jesus's. It doesn't matter what he says next. If the Lord of the universe, the, the agent of all of our creation, is through Christ, God created everything. If it's through him and he is saying all authority is mine, whatever he says next, the church must exhaust all resources to seek to accomplish whatever he says next. If we don't, we are not the church. If we're spending our resources in other ways to what he says next, then we are not 
being faithful to what he has commanded. All authority. And again, when he says all authority is mine, that's not heavy-handed. That's not him saying, you better listen up or else. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, this command I'm about to give you, we will win. We will be victorious. It will happen. You will accomplish this because all authority is mine. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He sandwiches it. Not only do I possess all power, all authority, all might. In addition to that, you're going on my behalf with all of that authority. But in addition to that, I'm going to be with you always. You ever have a question? Ask me. You ever wrestling with doubt? Come to me. Are you weary? I'm going to give you rest. Are you burnt out? I'm going to help you. I'm going to feel you. Do you need encouragement? I'm going to place people around you to exhort you. I'm going to provide what you need in order to accomplish what needs to happen. So if that is the mission of the church global, go and make disciples, how do we do that functionally? What is the role of the local church to fulfill the mission of the global church? Because to make disciples is the way that God is spreading his glory over all of the earth. Taking a sinner, transferring them over into the kingdom of the beloved son, as Colossians 1.13 says. That displays God's glory. That displays God's grace. That makes him look magnificent. Because you were dead and now you're alive. You are lost and now you are found. And God was at the epicenter of that entire plan of redemption. God's glory is spreading because now that we are no longer sinners but saints, no longer non-believers but believers in Christ, no longer non-Christians but Christians, little Christ walking around on this earth, we are beginning to live lives that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God that Christ has sent to us to be a helper within our lives. We are growing in, as believers, trusting in Jesus Christ, we are growing in love. We are growing in joy. We are growing in patience. We are growing in kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those things bring glory to God and spread God's glory all over the earth. And that is his goal. As he says in Habakkuk 2.14 is, My glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. How does his glory cover the earth like the waters cover the sea? Is one believer sharing the gospel with a non-believer, coming to know Christ, making a disciple out of that believer so that they can then go and disciple someone else. So that the glory continues to expand. Disciples are ultimately made. So how then does that, does that boil down to the functionality of the local church. If we are to glorify God and make disciples, what does that look like for us? And this is the way that we've stated it in our mission statement as a church. The district church exists 
to glorify God, number one, by making disciples, number two, through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. We begin to divide it out because we want you to see the characteristic traits of what a disciple is. Because if we are going to be a church that focuses on just trying to get converts or just trying to get butts in the seats or just trying to attract as many people as we can without investing in what a disciple actually is, we will not serve the body by helping them grow in worship, grow in community, grow in service, and grow in multiplication. We will not actually be making disciples if the goal is just to get people in a room. Not only that, it will not glorify God because if the goal is just to get people in the room, we don't know if they're growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We don't know if they're bearing any fruit. We don't know what their relationship with their spouse is looking like if it's growing in the relationship of Christ and the church and how they relate to one another. We don't know if the way in which they're raising their children is a way that honors God in the way that the Father relates to us and how he loves us, serves us, disciplines us. We don't know if that's happening if all we care about are butts in the seats. But if we care about making disciples as Jesus did with the 12, investing in them, and even within the 12, investing within three, Peter, James, and John. He spent hours upon hours upon hours of knowing them and being known by them. So this is why we break this down, because we want each of us to grow in the characteristic traits of a disciple. So number one, a disciple worships. A disciple worships God. And the reason why we have gospel-centered attached to each one of them is because we know scripturally that the gospel is the source for each of these to function. You will not worship God without an understanding of the gospel. You will not belong without an understanding of the gospel. You will not serve without an understanding of the gospel. And you will not multiply without an understanding of the gospel. If the gospel has not wrecked your life and come so into your life, good news into your life about the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, all that he has done and accomplished, if that does not wreck your life to where I no longer want to live for myself, but I want to live for him, if that has not happened, you do not have the fuel to worship. You do not have the context to belong. You do not have the overflow to then be able to go and serve people. And you absolutely will not have the results of multiplication. Because you do not have the foundation. You do not know Jesus. A disciple belongs to God. Or first worships God. Gives glory to God. Praises God. Does everything, whether eating or drinking, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, for the glory of God. Worship is the very fuel of discipleship. That weird thing that draws us to um, entertainment, sports. I mean, like, that's the innate desire within us to worship. That's all it is at the end of the day. 
that thing you love, Broadway music, that thing you love, country music, that thing, I can say that, I'm from Tennessee. Whatever it is that you love and you enjoy, the thing that draws us to that is because we were created to worship. And so the issue is never that we don't worship. It's just what is the object of our worship? What pulls our affections? Is it God or is it the world? The second one is a disciple belongs to God in community. Acts 2.42 says we devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture and to the fellowship of the saints. We devote ourselves to the fellowship of the saints. The word for that in the, in the Greek is koinonia, which I've used, and it's kind of a scandalous term, but it's an intercourse of relationships. It's an interweaving of relationships where we are so intimately attached to one another that we know the good and the bad and the ugly of each other. We know when to encourage and exhort and celebrate when we are walking in the fruit of the Spirit. And we know when to step in and rebuke and correct when we are walking out of step with the Spirit. We belong to one another and we are invested koinonia to each other. We are all about Jesus we are to share the gospel of our lives with one another. As 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, having an affectionate desire for you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives because you have, because you have become dear to us. He sandwiches that verse that, that, that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. I have a dear affection for you and you have become dear to us that I am not only going to come and teach you the gospel, but I'm going to share my very life with you. Can I come over for dinner? Can we go out to dinner? Can we play games with one another? Can we go grab a drink together? Can we sit for hours on end talking and listening and hearing about one another's stories and what it is that makes us tick and what, what it is that we get excited about and what, what it is that we're struggling with? What, what are we wrestling with in life? Let's get into the lives of one another so that we can continue to share the gospel with one another because the gospel is not just meant for your salvation, but it is the very fuel for your entire sanctification. The gospel is not meant to be something that we graduate from, but rather is just the doorway into becoming like Christ and being sanctified every single day. And so the way that God sets up the church to function in order for the gospel to get deeper within us is by pushing us towards one another. By sending us out, by getting us to stop thinking of ourselves and start thinking of others. Because if it's working the way God designs it to work, your desire for yourself will be taken care of by those around you pursuing you. And providing for you the encouragement and the exhortation that you so desperately long for. Community is the context for discipleship. You will never grow and mature in your relationship with Christ in isolation. It wasn't designed for isolation. It wasn't designed to be a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard that? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? There's nothing personal about your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a collective, public relationship with Jesus Christ in which we belong to the body of Christ. The foot needs to know it has a hand and an eye and a heart. 
and joints. It needs to know that it belongs. One of my favorite movie franchises right now is the John Wick trilogy. If you're young, I would not recommend it. Um, but the John Wick trilogy to me is, is kind of like, how many people have seen it? Let me just check my sin status here. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm with the two sinners in the back. All right. Um, so the first John Wick movie to me is like uh, the book of Job, except the unsanctified version of it. Um, so it's like this, it's this guy who has, it's Keanu Reeves, if you don't know. Um, he, his wife dies. Uh, someone comes and kills his dog and steals his car. Um, it's, it kind of sounds like a country song too, but... Um, <laughs> But that happens to him. And so the rest of the movie is just John Wick out for revenge, going and just killing everybody who have taken everything from him. And it's one guy literally just going with, I mean, I don't know how he has a thousand rounds of ammo on him at all times, but it's him going after 6,000 people and he's just doing it by himself, just wiping out people. I love it. It's great. Um, But anyways, that's not reality. That's not going to happen. If that was true in reality, he's going to get shot within like three minutes when he's got 15 or 20 people around him in the same room shooting at him. Like we were not designed to be able to come into this thing like Liam Neeson. This one's a little less crazy like John Wick is. But Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, when he's like, I have a particular set of skills and I will find you and I will hunt you and I will kill you. And then he like implements those set of skills. Like we do not have a set of skills that God has given us that allows us to do Christianity by ourselves. It doesn't work that way. We do not have, I have a set of skills in which I can go and be the greatest missionary and I do not need to belong to a church. I do not need to do this thing on my own. I'm going to wipe out every sinner by getting them saved. Like it does not work that way. Rather, we belong to this community, a body with many members with Christ as the head, which leads into the next one. A disciple serves believers and non-believers. Service is the overflow of discipleship. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Service is just doing good to people. It's looking for ways in which I can serve them. Serving them might be giving them encouragement, sending them a text, saying that you love them, saying that you're caring for them, saying that you are um, praying for them. That's an act of service. Another act of service is knowing that someone is going through a tough time financially and you drop a gift card in their mailbox in order for them to be able to go out and get some groceries or whatever it might look like. That's an act of service to one another. It's if they go out of town or if there's something happens and they had to go out on an emergency, take your mower over to their yard and cut their grass for them. Do whatever you can to provide good for those who are around you, especially those of the faith. So he's saying there's this kind of contrast here between I need to do good for everyone and I also need to do good for those who are within the church. So there's mission within the church. Kind of we, we use the, the language of like there's in-reach and outreach. But at the end of the day, it's just serving anybody with a heartbeat. Look for opportunities to serve anybody with a heartbeat. And so for us, there's obviously ways in which we serve in the church. Um, we had a little district training this morning. Little district is what we call our kids ministry. Where there was a training where it's, it's giving people 
opportunity to be able to serve our littles, to know the gospel, to know Jesus, to love him, to get saved in order for their ultimate satisfaction to become in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we know they're going to be bombarded with all kinds of things from the world around them that is going to be grabbing at their attention and their affections and their desires. Worship me, worship me, worship me. And we want to give them the true source. We want to give them Jesus. So we train people to be able to serve our children. It's not just serving parents so that they don't have to watch their kids during service. It's serving the kids so that they can hear Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus and treasure Jesus. We want them to treasure Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 7-11 through 11 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's stu- as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love that it brings it back to glory. You want to glorify God? Serve. Serve. Look for ways to pour your life out to others. And I love what he says, especially for those who serve. Serves by the strength that God supplies. There's this misconception within church of this idea of burnout. That, that I so exhaust myself that I have nothing left to give. And I am, I am the first one to tell you that there are going to be seasons where you grow very weary. And in that weariness can come frustration. In that weariness of, of, of changing diapers upstairs. That there's going to be, man, like, okay, I don't have to do it for another six weeks. Or, man, if I could just go six months without doing it, that would be fantastic. Like, I'm just burnt out on doing this. I am not saying that your weariness is not true. But what I am saying is that if we look at it from a consumeristic mindset and we focus on the weariness and the frustration rather than the task at hand to serve and that God supplies strength to serve, that's the recipe for burnout. The recipe for burnout is let me serve without ever praying for God to strengthen me in this service. Without him providing for me the grace that I need to be able to get it. Like, do you think that preparing a sermon every single week is easy? It's not. It's wearisome. Planning songs every single week, getting up and singing, can become wearisome. When we were setting up as a church before we come here, like, guys, you've got, if, you're, if you're visiting today, you've got it made. We were in a movie theater for about 20 months having to haul, haul everything in and out every single week. That grows wearisome. But I know churches, we did it for 20 months. I know churches, friends of mine, who were setting up and tearing down for eight years. Eight years. And the strength of God supplied them. The strength of God served them. We nurture one another in service 
and we love the world and service around us. Right now, upstairs in the office, we have about $1,000 worth of um, school supplies, 50 to 60 backpacks. We're, we're, we're sitting on it, waiting to just kind of go through and sort because I'm not an organizational guy. Um, it's in a pile in the office. Um, but we want people to be able to come in and serve by just going through, assorting it, putting in backpacks, and allowing us to then be able to seek out the community around us to say who's in need right now that doesn't have the means to be able to get resources for their students in the next month. We want to serve those around us. So if you want to help sort that stuff, you let me know afterwards. If worship is the fuel for discipleship, community is the context for discipleship, service is the overflow of discipleship, multiplication becomes the result of discipleship. Acts 6 verse 7 says this, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9.31 says this, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. John 15 verse 8 says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit proves that we are disciples. The multiplication proves that we are disciples. We can't just come in and worship. And that's the only form of our discipleship as a characteristic trait. We cannot worship and not belong. We cannot belong and not serve. And we cannot worship, belong, and serve without ultimately multiplying. If any of the components of the characteristic trait are missing or lacking, all it is is just revealing there's some misunderstandings about the gospel of Jesus Christ within us. And we want to grow in that. We want to learn in that. We want to be able to see, God, am I missing something in the way that I'm seeing you working out your story through the scriptures and throughout our history? How has the church ultimately functioned? Well, it worships. They belong to one another. They serve and they multiply. Biblically and historically, this is what constitutes a church. This is what constitutes a church. There are a couple of things that <clears throat> are included because you could also look at that and say, well, um, go to a Indianapolis Colts football game. You're going to see 60,000 people gather for worship. You're going to see people dress in white and blue and have this feeling that they belong. You're going to see people walking up and down the aisles. Cotton candy. And they're serving you. And then at the end of the day you hope that, you're, that it's all going to result in the multiplication of wins. That lead to a championship. What makes a church a church versus something else. That looks the exact same in some ways. Historically and biblically, there are several things that must happen for a church to be a church. And, and the funny thing is, across the board, theologically, doesn't matter what camp or what tribe you belong to, 
Whether you're Calvinistic, whether you're Arminian, Reformed, not Reformed, whether you're Anglican, whether you're uh, Southern Baptist, across the board, even Catholics, across the board, agree on these things constitute a church. The preaching of the Word of God. Baptism and communion. The preaching of the Word of God. Baptism and communion. That's why we at the district, we say we preach the Word of God, we sing the Word of God, we pray the Word of God, we read the Word of God. We want to be about expositing verse by verse the Word of God because we know as a church constituted, that's what has to happen. We get the Word of God into people's lives because that's what God, the Holy Spirit, uses to make us more like Jesus Christ himself. Sharing with us the love story of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's what he's doing. In addition to that, there's the command to go and baptize everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize by immersion because the Greek word baptizo in uh, Matthew 28 means to immerse, to submerge. This is why when you look at different texts within Scripture and you see the baptism that's happening there, like, for example, just take the Ethiopian eunuch when he's on the, the, uh, the route and he's reading and he's looking through Isaiah and then Philip is just literally told, go south. And Philip's going south and he runs into this Ethiopian eunuch and he begins sharing the gospel with him as the Ethiopian eunuch's reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, specifically, the suffering servant. And he's saying, how can I understand this unless someone shares with me? He shares the gospel with him. He completes it for him. And then the Ethiopian eunuch says, what keeps me from going down to this river to be baptized? Well, if he's on a long journey, you've got to believe he's got some water with him. What well, would have kept him from just doing some sprinkling right there in the moment? And I'm not like discrediting any type of sprinkling baptism if that's happened for you in the past. But what I am saying is that the scriptures, they look for ways in order to get people to a river and dunk them. So we're going to follow in line with that. And so we do believers baptism immersion. That's what we do. We're praying for baptisms to happen. If you've not been baptized, we want to baptize you. It would be amazing. And then the other thing is communion. We finish every single service with communion. There's nothing supernatural about communion. It's an illustration. Like you eating the bread and drinking the juice does not save you. It, and it does not uh, oh, what, transubstantiation. It does not become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ as it's going in. That's weird. We're not like zombie stuff here. But what it is, is it's reminding us that the strength of God is what we need to supply us. The sacrifice of Jesus, the very foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what we need to constitute us as a church. The only way that we were believers was because of him going to the cross and dying. The only way. If there was any other way, his cup would have passed from him. But the Lord seemed fit to crush him on the cross in order for us to be brought in and forgiven of our sins. Debt was paid on Jesus at the cross. So we worship and we honor him through communion. Here's what's so amazing. In 2010, there was um, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti. Um, two weeks after that, we landed on the ground in Haiti. 
And when we were driving from Port-au-Prince up to this village called Titayen, um, as we were driving up through there, I'm looking over and I'm seeing these just massive dug out, I mean, football field size holes. And as we're literally driving by, I'm just seeing them dump bodies, dump bodies, just massive graves. And as we're driving through, literally my mind, I'm thinking, what are we here to do? Like, what can we possibly do to offer them anything? And as we drive and we get to Titayan, we get there and we speak with our translator. And we say, what, what, what can we do? And he said, we, just, we need you at the church. We need you to get to the church. And I said, okay. This was like a Tuesday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, is anybody going to be there? He said, everybody's there. Everybody's come to the church. It's like the only building that was left standing, which was just a pavilion. And we get there, and when we pull up, I say, okay, we're here at the church. What can we do? Are we, like, you know, getting some food drives going? He said, no, we just, we just need you to preach. I was like, oh, I didn't think I was preaching until Sunday. I thought I had some time. But, okay, so I'll, I'll get, they, we just need you to preach because they just want the word of God. They just want to be, they just want to hear hope in the scriptures and so I got up and I preached and then when I sat down they got another band a band came up on stage and led for about 35 45 minutes and then they looked at me again and I said like you need me to like come do a response no we need you to preach again I was like oh, in the states we're one and done like uh and they said no we we need you to you're preaching again you're doing another 45 minutes and so at first I mean, I just led off with the Beatitudes, like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, I didn't know what to do. I, I, just, I just led in with what I felt I led to do. And then this time, I went with um, uh, uh, Peter and John when they were at the gate, and the beggar was, what, what, what do you have for me? Can you provide any alms for me? He's like, man, money and, money and food and resources we don't have, but what we do have is Jesus. We want to give you Jesus. And so I preached from that for the next 45 minutes, and then another band follows up after that and this time I got on point I was like they're gonna ask me again after that which they did we went from three o'clock in the afternoon till nine o'clock at night because they had nowhere to go they had nothing to do all they wanted was the hope of God and after every single time we we're inviting people there was people being baptized down front there was communion that was being had and here's their communion it was not bread, which is gluten-free bread that we use. I don't know if you call it bread, but it, we have bread and we have juice. What they had was these things called mud pies, which is essentially rice and mud mixed in with a vegetable oil that they then bake. And after they bake it, they then, they then break it up, and that's what you partake of at Communion. And so I partook of that, I think, four or five times that day. But that's what they needed. And even though I couldn't understand what they were singing, even though as I'm preaching, and, and they, I would say like one sentence, and then the translator who's preaching alongside of me would go on for like five minutes, I'm like, why don't I just go sit down, man? You've got this. But like, I, I'm preaching, I'm not understanding what he's saying, I'm not understanding what they're singing, I can't read the words that are on the screen, but I was a part of the church that day. We had church. We worshipped. We belonged to one another. 
We were communing with one another. We were serving each other. And disciples were multiplying. The church was multiplying. And Jesus was lifted up. He was magnified. And that's what I want for us as the district church. I want us to worship. I want us to belong to one another. I want us to serve each other and those outside. And I want us to multiply. And when I say multiply, I'm not saying go out and find 100 people. I'm saying focus on one or two people throughout the year. Focus on someone within the church that you can be in a discipling relationship with. And then focus on a non-believer outside the church that you can be have, having gospel conversations with. They can come to know Jesus. And keep discipling them. I like to use the language, disciple someone unto salvation. Evangelism and discipleship are just all under the same umbrella. Go and make disciples. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. That's what I want to give my next 30, 40 years to. And I hope that you'll join me in that. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you. We are thankful for you, God. Jesus, you have made it clear that you are the one that builds your church. God, there's nothing... Um, there's nothing special about the district church. We're a group of people, broken, fractured, flawed. But what is special about the district church is that we center around the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to be all about him, for him. Loving him, serving him, worshiping him. Belonging to the bride that is his with specific roles and responsibilities within that that we can give ourselves over to to serve the body and to serve those outside of the body. And God, that we would multiply, that we would bear fruit, fruit internally in the fruit of the Spirit and fruit externally in the form of sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I ask, as the scriptures have said, that your spirit would strengthen us to be disciples. Not just converts, not just attenders, not just visitors, disciples, disciples of you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. It's all for your beautiful name. Amen. As we go ahead and stand. And as I mentioned, part of the church is communion. We have this time to be able to worship God, to honor him by sending Jesus to break his body and to shed his blood so that you don't have to. You don't have to die for the church. Jesus already did. So we thank him. And as a response, we worship him. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, for taking my sins. And this is a moment, this is... It's heavy, but it's a moment for us as we were confessing before the sermon to be able to come to Jesus at the same time in the invitation to be able to look at him and say, Jesus, those sins those that I was confessing, you took upon yourself on the cross and you broke your body and you shed your blood for the removal 
of my sins, for the forgiveness of my sins. So I encourage you, be lifted in spirit as we partake of communion. Be freed from those things that continue to entangle you and hold you down and enslave you. Let us throw those things off because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's worship him in this time of communion. Let's stand together and partake. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at